Thank you for listening to Voices Unheard Podcast, a podcast production of Physician Just Equity, amplifying voices to cultivate cultural change. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Melissa Blaker and Dr. Pringle Miller. Catherine, it's great to have you with us today. Um, And I want to start our conversation by going back to the Narrative Inquiry and Bioethics Symposium narrative that you put together for the journal. Um, Your narrative was entitled, But I Love My Big Hair, an essay on the discouragement and difficulty of becoming a woman surgeon. And this was um, one of 19 narratives that was published online through Johns Hopkins Press and then became part of a compendium of narratives called Voices, Me Too in Surgery, um, a symposium. Uh, Just incidentally, you may know this already, but the listeners probably don't know that you were one of two residents or learners that had their narratives in that symposium. So your voice was, in some respects, a minority voice, given the fact that most of the other narrative writers were attendings. Um, in surgery. Uh, So just, this is not related to your uh, narrative, but just as a point of interest, you mentioned that you have a mother who's a nurse and a father who's a physician, and that you're the youngest of four, I believe, with three older brothers. I am. I am. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say Um, that that's a pretty good setup to be tough in a lot of respects. Are any of your brothers doctors or nurses? No, none of them ended up entering medicine. I'm, I was pretty determined that I was going to go to art school and become a fashion designer. So, okay. so it, that, was a big, it was a big shift, <laughs> to say yes. the least, and surgery was a bigger one. Right. Well, we'll, we'll get to that, but um, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that we'll talk about is um, your history with sewing which feeds into your mm-hmm. comment about being in fashion and fashion designer and a sewer. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, one of the first comments I felt that uh, was worth expanding on that you wrote uh, that uh, your hair was a manifestation of your personality, a bit big, a tad unruly, and utterly authentic, which I thought was an amazing sentence. And we all have memories of not feeling like we could get the smell of the formalin out of our noses being in Anatomy Live, Anatomy Lab, and, and just the idea of like that penetrating into your hair, which is all over your face. And I it just brought back it just brought back some memories. Also, it brought back the memory of one of the slogans that you wrote in your narrative about how surgical residents eat when you can sleep when you can. And there's really no reference to the, to the issue of like, when do you shower? When do you bathe? You know, that's just kind of put down lower on the priority list. Yeah. Um, Although I was recently told as I've gotten to the point in my training where now I have to take home call. I was told by one of our chief residents, always take a shower before you go in because you never know when you're going to get, you're not going to be able to shower again, which is true. I have learned that he is correct. (laughs) 
say that was one of my frustrating things during training is the lack of personal hygiene. It's like you could sometimes because of your call shifts go days without showering and that's never factored into your life's, you know, into your schedule. Yeah. Right. <laughs> one of the things that I also loved about your narrative that resonated with me is a story that I've heard many times from mostly women um, who had really no idea that they were going to fall in love with surgery as medical students and didn't go to medical school thinking that they would become surgeons. And, you know, given that you really didn't like anatomy lab for a lot of reasons and weren't thinking at all about doing surgery, it was fun to read where you had, you know, this moment where it all kind of came together. Um, and you, I want you to read this, but I'm going to lead up to the idea that you're on call for trauma and you're told you're tasked to cut the clothes off of the trauma patient and then swaddle them in warm blankets. And so you know what your job is, but then after you do your job, you're just sort of there in the background watching the residents take mm -hmm. over. And so in your um, narrative, if you could just read the part that starts in the second column, midway down in the first full paragraph, I was captivated. I was captivated by the commanding grace with which he approached his task. If life's decisions can be pinpointed to moments, moments pinpointed to in order to explain one's decisions, then that moment was mine. The flick of a wrist sparked my mind and heart simultaneously. And I thought that, that is the kind of doctor I want to be. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I don't know, Dr. Blaker, what your moment was, but I, I had a moment like that myself. And I wanted you to read it because I think for the listeners that might be undergraduates or medical students who really haven't had that moment yet, it's pretty amazing how kind of all-encompassing and intoxicating it is. I mean, like I yeah. look back at my moment thinking that in the classic sense of feeling high, I was very high and I, my feet were not touching the ground and that lasted for a long time. Um, yeah. I, I used the word seduced. I felt like it had seduced me in a way I wasn't expecting. And I just was like, yeah, like intoxicated with it and just wanted to be and see and be doing able to do more. Right. It was, it was unexpected. Yeah. And all encompassing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would check on our like patients that I had taken care of on surgery. Like when I was on neurology, I'd look up their charts and be like, what happened to them? Like, what was the outcome of that surgery? Did they have another one? Cause on trauma, you know, people had multiple cases and long courses. <laughs> so one of the other elements that I thought was really interesting and resonated with me was um, this idea that you weren't sort of the prototypical surgeon, both obviously sort of if we look at males or white males as being the prototypical phenotype, um, but also mm -hmm. with respect to personality um, and that you actively resisted the idea of becoming a surgeon because of sort of this dichotomy that you didn't see yourself entering into this tribe and being kind of aligned with who you were as a person and um yeah it's i would say that's even still a struggle um at times and 
I just felt and sometimes still feel like the things I value are not always at the forefront of a surgeon's mind, which I feel like is unfair to say too. Like I, I'm still wrestling with this idea. Cause like I, in my second year of residency was when we started seeing consults and becoming the diagnostician and knowing the workup and knowing what peritonitis feels like, you know, and what a cold limb examines like and things like that. And I would, I would do a full HPI and I would spend a fair amount of time like assessing people's social history. Um, you know, where do you live? Do you live with anybody? What's your smoking history? And I felt like when I would tell people like present to my senior residents or present to the attendings, like this was not of any concern to them. Um, and I was told you need to be more efficient. You're thorough, but you're too thorough. And I was like, I just don't, I don't know what that means. Like all of this is important to their care. Um, and I guess I always saw myself as like someone who's very humanistic, driven to medicine, not by the science, but by like the human aspect of it. So it seemed weird to me that I was all of a sudden being told like, don't spend as much time getting to know your patients because you have to be more efficient. You need to be more clear cut. You need to do this, you need to do that. And it felt so at odds with who I wanted to be as a doctor that I felt really lost and sometimes still struggle with that. But I've just sort of decided that I'm gonna do it my way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can. <laughs> well, there was another piece of this too that you alluded to in your narrative about being told that you had the compassion part down, but were you tough enough? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Like people see me as this soft, kind of caring, nurturing person. Oh, you should have, family medicine makes total sense for you. Oh, you should have done psychiatry. Um, but like surgery, and I, the thing is though, I know I'm tough enough. Um, Cause I've been in a lot of situations where I've had to tell the truth or confront people throughout my life. And like, I know I can do the hard stuff. I just don't like pitch a spit unnecessarily. <laughs> so to set the timeline straight for the listeners, um, just tell us what year you applied to residency, not entered, but actually were applying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I applied to a surgical residency in the 2016-2017 match cycle. So my match day was in March 2017. Okay. So for con context sake, we're talking about uh, basically three, a little over three years ago. So this is, you know, not, <laughs> this is not a long time ago. And you, no. <laughs> you, you wrote about um, some of these things that people said to you um, that had to do with do you still, do you want to have a life? Do you want to get married? Do you want to have children? Are you crazy? Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this? Do you hate yourself? For the people who are struggling with some of the same sort of we call work-life balance issues, you know, what can you impart to them about how you navigated that? Well, perhaps this is very surgical, but I'm very stubborn. Um, and I think some of my stubbornness has sort of just given me the 
I guess, energy or determination to prove people wrong and, and to keep going through. Um, I mean, I'm not married still. I don't have children still. Um, I don't even have a pet, but um, I have, I feel like still been able to like honor myself and sort of take care of myself throughout all of this, which I guess is an accomplishment in and of itself. Um, I do certainly see people struggling to do those things, my peers or even our attendings who have young children. So I don't think it's like there's a magical fix to anything, but I do think that you have to be committed to what you're doing and find some kind of joy and satisfaction from it. Cause like if things are taking you away from things that you love or things that you value and work is that thing, like you're not going to enjoy it. And I see, I feel like I see a lot of people who also are in that rut of like, well, I have to go to work to make all this other stuff possible. And I guess you just cope with it in your own way. But I, I worry about that even still for myself. But I yeah. feel like more and more there are more women surgeons. Um, my dream is to have an all lady surgeon practice where like we're just all a bunch of awesome ladies who are like, oh, your kids recitals today. I don't mind taking your call. I know you're good for it later. And like, that's just the attitude. You cover each other and you realize people have lives and needs that are outside of your work. Right. <laughs> so just to kind of go off of um, what you're talking about as far as finding your happiness and your uh, work-life balance, I know that um, in your second year of training, that was something you started to question. Is this something that's going to make you happy on the job and off the job? So can you kind of give our listeners a a better understanding of what that was like for you? Yeah. So um, second year, I think is, or at least in our program, it's the year that you get a lot more responsibility all of a sudden um, because you're like the front person seeing all the consults for the hospital, um, which is like a huge honor and privilege and responsibility of like, you're the first person to assess like that really sick patient in the ER or in the ICU or whatnot. Um, and I felt very just overwhelmed by all of it. Um, I was like, not, you know, you get, I, I'll give you an example. So the day that I really started questioning, do I want to continue in my surgical residency? was a day that I was on a 24-hour call shift at our university hospital, which is just like any other tertiary academic center with a lot of beds and a lot of volume. And I was assigned to round on a probably about like 15 or 20 patient our acute care surgery service. I had to round on that during the morning. Rounds bled into the afternoon and I was also holding the consult pager. And I got 21 consults in 24 hours. And this was the first time I had to be that person um, for that year. And I had just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do all my work. I like felt like I couldn't wrap my head around some of these consults that we had. Um, some of them were bedside procedures. So that took up time and it just, it, built and built and built. And eventually in the evening, um, my the senior resident who was with me saw that I was really behind 
and he basically, and it both an act I thought of as like merciful, but also I felt deeply ashamed by it. He took the pager away and said, you have to catch up on what you need to do. And I felt like so much shame in that because I was like, I can't, I couldn't keep up. I couldn't do this all on my own. And I find it, it's so frustrating to be in a system that kind of sets you up for failure a lot of the time by asking you to do like impossible tasks by in volume. Um, and that after that day, I came home just like completely physically, emotionally, just like drained. And I thought I would really like to never have to do that again. And, you know, I told one of my senior residents about this much later. And she said to me, well, yeah, but those days make you stronger. And I really think that I could be just as good a clinician if I didn't have that day. Because <laughs> it, it more just made me doubt myself than anything else. It made me feel very insecure. And that ended up speedballing or like snowballing into a whole other set of losing confidence in the operating room. Like I really started hating to go to the OR because I would be clumsy. I didn't know what to ask for. I wasn't familiar with the anatomy, um, which like in November of your second year, I can reflect on that now and say, oh, you're not really supposed to yet. Like that's the year that I learned how to start seeing planes. Um, but it also like I would come to work and round and just felt like in this fog. And it just made me think like, what am I doing? Like, I'm not, I don't like this anymore. Like all that thrill and like that mystique and that adrenaline that we talked about earlier was just like gone. You know, something that um, I feel like our training environments isn't, they're not very good at, especially in surgical training, is how to prepare you, how to get you out of the medical, stu uh, medical student mindset, reporting information uh, to that mm -hmm. experience you were having where you're actually seeing the consults and now you're uh, having to process the information and do something with it. And then in surgical training, having to actually take that knowledge and apply it in a operating room setting where you're having to make decisions based on that information. So our, I feel like our model of education doesn't really prepare learners for that. Do you feel like you were um, prepared for what you were going to experience in the operating room? Uh, no, I don't think I was prepared for anything I experienced in second year, really, other than I knew how to navigate the hospital. <laughs> and I can remember in starting my second year, asking a lot of the senior residents, you know, I felt like I had really good preparation to become an intern. My medical school did an excellent job at that. Um, but I started asking people like, what makes a good second year? Like, I don't know. The only example I have is the people I worked with. And some of those people, I think, do a sloppy job. <laughs> Um, just as an outsider's perspective. So how do I become good? And, you know, a lot of people didn't have very tangible advice. Um, and certainly the preparation and the expectations for the OR also similarly, you know, people would be like, read about your patients, watch a video, review the anatomy. And when you're, you come home exhausted, you're just, you're not going to do that. I mean, speaking truthfully. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's a lot that we could uh, spin off of on several of the things that you've said, but um, was there any particular thing uh, that you did to help bridge the gap, to help you kind of turn? Yeah, 
So one of the thoracic surgeons who was, he had just joined faculty and he had finished uh, his fellowship and just joined faculty during my second year. Um, I was seeing a consult. He happened to be in the hospital. So he's like, let's go see it together. This was during the daytime. And he asked me, well, like, what's your, what's, how do you approach seeing a consult? And I told him what I do, which had been, what had been modeled to me, which was look at the labs, maybe read an old like discharge summary, you know, get some sense of their history, look at the CAT scan, go see the patient. And he was like, no, that's like not how you should do this. I was like, oh, okay. Um, And he told me, you know, just get the call, get what the consult's for, go see the patient, takes 15, 20 minutes to do a physical and a history of full HPI go back, like review the objective data, write your note, call the attending. Cause that way you've synthesized everything. You've processed the data, you've formed your differential. You can argue it, you can support it. And I tried that and that's what ended up working for me. Um, and it made me extremely efficient. And it also made me more confident cause I felt like I knew what I wanted to say when I called people at three in the morning and it also felt like it was honoring kind of some of the the ways I wanted to be a clinician, which was I didn't want to just be someone who operated on somebody because of a CAT scan read. I wanted to operate on somebody because their whole story and exam and all the data fit into that diagnosis. Um, so that's, that's something that was very tangible and explicit that really helped me. Um, yeah. I have a couple comments um, in listening to you. One of them is this surgical telos about learning by fire or trial by fire. And um, part of that is also the motto that we live by, which is see one, do one, teach one. And it's just really good that you brought this up because in surgical culture, there is a certain amount of needing to be at that cutting edge of learning that helps you in some respects to expand your skill set and expand your confidence. Because I've given this a fair amount of thought, how much autonomy is the right amount of autonomy? How much pressure and combination of tasks is the right amount of pressure and combination of tasks to get people kicked into the gear that they need to perform at in order to be functional in the space. And every job is different in terms of its volumes and its pace and so forth. But there's a lot about surgery that makes me feel like we learn how to be in a pressure cooker. This is sort of the way that we do it. And to what degree do we not need to do it that way and still acquire the skills and the mindset to be able to make decisions swiftly, to ligate that artery swiftly, you know, to do the things that we need to do that are these glorious sort of life-saving maneuvers um, that, that cannot just take time 
to think about sometimes. You need to be able to act quickly. And I know just for myself that one of the times in residency that I look back at and feel very grateful for is a rotation that I did at Kaiser Sunset in Los Angeles, where they had a model that the surgical residents were really kind of doing an apprenticeship or they were junior attendings. So they mm -hmm. didn't really treat the residents so much like attendings at the senior level. You were kind of off to the races. And if you needed something, you could consult the attending. And I didn't grow up in that culture in my residency program. So when I was plopped into that culture, I felt like I wasn't being supervised. But I realize now that if I hadn't had that six months of time where I call the attending and say, we have a patient with acute cholecystitis, we're going to go to the OR and them saying, okay, that's fine. Let me, you know, this doesn't happen anymore, but you know, let me know if you need something. I'm here. The first time I heard that, I nearly had a heart attack because I was like, wait, what, what I'm taking the patient to the OR by myself. What do you mean? You're not going to be there. You're like, I've just made a diagnosis. I think I made the right diagnosis, but what if I didn't make the right diagnosis? And now I'm taking the patient to the operating room to do a coli. Um, if I hadn't have had a chance to go through those motions with that sort of level of autonomy, it would have made it really difficult for me to go into solo private practice when I finished a five-year residency program. And so, you know, on the one hand, I'm not sure that's always great for patient care, but on the other hand, you have to be able to sort of spread your wings. And it's not the same thing as having to round on 20 patients on the acute care service and do 21 consults in 24 hours. But there is an element of that, you know, how much stretch yeah. do we accommodate and how much hair do we grow on our backs um, so that we can do the job? Because there's a, there's a lot of unknowns in the job that we can't always predict and we do have to think on our feet and act quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the right answer is on that. I think the right answer is that it's, everybody's different. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the right yeah. answer is that there isn't really no right answer for everybody. And the problem is that the model is set up for a certain type of individual, which isn't always the type of individual that is a surgical resident today or is a surgeon today. And whether we're talking about mm -hmm. the way people learn or the environments and the pressure that people can withstand before they meet their breaking point, or just even in practice, everybody is different and everybody requires a certain amount of support to do their jobs well. So I want to kind of segue and then get Dr. get back to um, the conversation with Dr. Blacker about sort of your second year, Blaker, excuse me. Um, mm -hmm. but you had also made some references that resonated with a guest that we had before, um, who also contributed to the narrative inquiry, uh, Dr. Sarah Temkin about gender roles and being treated differently as a woman versus a man in the operating room or in the ICU or on the ward. And you had talked about in your narrative, how you were at the table with an attending asking for instruments, anticipating, you know, getting into the groove of doing an operation as a resident, mm -hmm. an operation theoretically that you would need to do as an attending once you finish. And the scrub tech didn't give you the instruments 
that you asked for until the attending rubber stamped it. And, and I want you to yeah. talk about that, but I also want to say that it made me think about the autonomy piece and what we've seen in data about women residents in surgery getting less operative experience and lot less operative exposure, less operative ana- autonomy than men. And, and there are a lot of aspects to that, but it made me think about if you can't keep pace with the anticipation that you had in asking for the instrument, chances are that if you're working with an inpatient attending, and most surgeons are pretty impatient, you're going to lose your window of opportunity to do parts of the case that you could have otherwise done because there's a lag. And so, you know, that's in some respects, I thought a really horrible sabotage that could have worked to your disadvantage. Now in the scenario that you sort of suggested in your narrative, the attending was pretty accommodating and just is like, yeah, give it to her, give it to her, give it to her, you know, it's okay, it's okay. But like, if you'd been working with somebody else who wasn't willing to wait, you could have lost out Mm -hmm. on an opportunity to really be in the flow of the case, maybe be the primary surgeon and not the assist surgeon, which makes a difference in terms of experience. Yeah. And I do think that happens pretty much less and less now, but it was something that I felt, at least I felt and perceived to be very frequent in my junior years. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, people don't know us yet as residents and don't know if we know what we're talking about. Um, But I just remember it feeling like this is yet another place that someone's telling me I don't belong. Like, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't be here. And it it just, even if that wasn't what was supposed to be communicated, the perception was that, my perception of that. And it it ended up being just very damaging and humiliating. Like every time it happened, it's like, this is just another place where you don't. Well, it sends a message also that you're not somebody they need to listen to. You're not somebody that has authority to know what you're asking for. And the other theme that I think is really important is giving you the benefit of the doubt. If, if, if it seems as though, you know, most residents that aren't capable don't have the forethought, aren't anticipating in a way that is keeping up with what's going on on the field. And so if the resident is keeping up with what's going on in the field and there is a a flow and a dynamic happening and the attending is not holding your hands or saying, wait, don't do that, hold up, you know, communicating in some way that suggests that you're not thinking about it right, you're not seeing it right, we need to think about this, we need to stop and pause and regroup, then the attending is going to do that. And the scrub tech is going to sense that, you know, and if that's not what's going on and the attending is just going with it, chances are the attending feels confident that the resident knows what they're doing. And yeah. it's too bad that that attending, since we've talked a lot about upstanders and not letting these types of microaggressions invade the space, you know, it's too bad that this attending didn't seem to say she's got it covered, give her what she wants let us do this case. And I, I suspect that probably a lot of them don't notice. It's going to be my suspicion, but that's just. 
One of the real uplifting things, and we're going to wrap up sort of the narrative part uh, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. There's one other excerpt I want you to read, but one of the uplifting parts that I thought um, I got out of your narrative was that several surgeons had said to you that surgery needs people like you. And I'm sure that that felt like a boost because it made you, and I think you actually said in some respects that, you know, it, well, when you, when you matched, it validated that who you were was enough as a surgeon was okay as a surgeon, like you were going to be a surgeon um, and it was going to happen in your present context. Like you weren't going to have to change yourself and do mental gymnastics or physical gymnastics in order to fit in. Um, So I I thought that was really encouraging. And I hope that the learners out there who are very influenced about what surgeon attending say to them are judicious in thinking about the positives and the negatives and weighing those in a sense that it doesn't determine for them what they're going to do, that they kind of dig deep in themselves and decide what what fits best for them. Because the influences of people being negative and positive can be really pretty profound. Yeah. I mean, those those comments certainly still carry me through and did then. And even now, you know, well, I guess we might talk about it more. But when I was at this crossroads of do I stay in surgery or not in my second year, um, there were a few moments that from attendings, like small things they said to me that I was like, okay, someone's on my side. Someone thinks I can do this. I remember doing, we do total um, abdominal, the tap, um, inguinal hernia repairs laparoscopically at my institution. We don't do TEPs um, as much. And so we have to suture the peritoneal flap at the end. We don't clip them. And I remember suturing, this was at the end of my second year with one of our attendings. And he was like, Baki, you got good hands. You got good hands. You're only a two and you can do this. Like you have good hands. And I just remember thinking like, I don't think anyone's told me this yet. Like this feels so good to hear, even though it's taking me like 30 minutes to do this. It's really, really hard, but like someone can see that I have potential or another attending was rounding with me on the weekend and he was like, I don't know what I had said to him. I had made some obscure reference to something. And he was like, Baki, you're weird, but I like your weird. <laughs> and I found this like so endearing. And I was just like, yeah, that guy, that guy gets me. <laughs> um, so those, those little things can carry you really far. They certainly did. For well, me. it's a far cry, isn't it? Between the attending that said, Baki, you have great hands, and the attending who found no correlation between your history of sewing and wanting to be a surgeon. Yeah. (laughs) I have no explanation for his thought process (laughs) because that just seems so absurd. (laughs) Well, sewing is... But I was, I was told. Well, I can can believe it. I mean, sewing, sewing in the literal sense of sewing, sewing cloth together is woman's work and sewing other things, tissues together is man's work. There's not a relationship there. Yeah. So let's wrap up. Yeah. Um, the part of your narrative that I wish 
for you to just finish this segment of the podcast um, with is the very mm -hmm. end, which starts, in fact, earlier in my residency, and then read to the end. In fact, earlier in my residency, such advice nearly led me to quit training and abandon surgery altogether. But when I feel I may break, I heed Bernice Johnson Regan's words, quote, if in moving through your life, you find yourself lost, go back to the last place where you knew who you were and what you were doing and start from there. For me, that place is the bedside where I assure each patient that I am here and that I will take good care of them. Because when it comes to what matters in a surgeon, that's all there is, has been, and ever should be. And that's a very powerful quote. And I think it's uh, very helpful to you at this point in your training that you're able to identify that, you know, that this is where you need to be because that helps you get through some of those bad days. But we had talked previously about kind of in your second year, you started to mm -hmm. feel that you uh, weren't enough of whatever, you know, people were giving you this dialogue that says you weren't enough and they filled in the blanks and take us on a journey with you kind of when that started and what road that led you down um, as you started to try to answer these questions? Yeah. So it was, it really started, I think, again, with that 21 consults and 24 hours a day where I just came home and was like, I never want to do this again. Like, I never want to have a day like that again. And I know that surgeons have days like that. So at first I was like, oh God. Um, and then it was kind of just this slow this slow like battering down of the confidence like i think of myself as a pretty confident person pretty self-assured um like i know who i am i know how to get things done um and i just felt like i was just wandering through the hospital completing tasks kind of without much thought and kind of like in this haze and i felt just very unhappy and in medical school i had seen a therapist for about two years um, after I had like ended the, a long-term relationship and kind of had some other things that I was processing. And so I had, I had found great benefit from that. So I decided pretty early on, like kind of when I noticed that I was in that kind of similar haze um, that I was like, Oh, I should see, I should see somebody. Um, and so I started in, I think, November, early December of that year, seeing um, our like therapist who's designated to like for residents. Um, we fortunately have like a program for mental health and stuff. So it was very easy to access. And she's very accommodating with her hours and appointments that she can see patients. Um, so I started talking to her just a lot about what was unhappy or what was making me unhappy. And it kind of I think the biggest sort of insight that I got from her was that I have all these like qualities or values that I hold and my work environment for whatever reason did not elevate them to the same level that I did. And in fact, sometimes like de-elevated them, like pushed them down or said they were not worthy of, of honoring. And that conflict was extremely difficult for me um, to keep doing my work in the way that I thought doctors should be in the way that I had seen doctors in my medical school and surgeons in my medical school, like 
have that full like accountability and responsibility for the patient. I just felt like I just couldn't do that under the constraints that I was on. And so I really thought about, well, should I switch? Would there be another field that would allow me to honor those things more easily, more like in my everyday? Or if I don't, how can I reconnect with them? So then how did you process through that time? What was it that helped you get from, because obviously you stayed with surgery. So how did you move through those questions? It's been like a very slow and sort of evolving process. I think that realization of the the driver of my unhappiness was not like, like I keep using the word honoring, but like acknowledging or honoring every day the things that I valued. Um, so I started to try to more actively do that in spite of what I was being told. You know, if I like met a patient I connected with in the ER, I like I love old men patients. Like I love the old people so much. And my favorite question to ask them was like, what did you used to do for work? And I got like the most fascinating answers. You know, one guy used to sell like organ pianos and he told me all about like the organ business and how, you know, in the 70s when Lawrence Welk went off the air, it just ruined the organ sales. And I just thought that was so funny. I could have died. And, you know, just sort of delighting in these interactions with people. Um, and that was one way that I, I just decided, like, I'm going to take the time to do this because it's important to me and to me being better. And in the operating room, it was really a struggle at first because I really had to force myself to like be engaged because of a lot of that anxiety that I was describing of feeling clumsy and unprepared. But I will say that as my second year progressed, I started being able to see like planes more. And that was really satisfying just like intellectually and cognitively. And so I could anticipate different moves more and different steps. And I think the attendings noticed that and saw that I was more engaged um, and then gave me more responsibility in part. So that was like a gradual part to building, building more confidence there. But I think the starting to be able to see what we were doing was a huge breakthrough for me. And that's what I tell our second years now is like, that's what you should be focusing on. Not all like, you know, what instrument do you need? It's just like, you need to be able to see it in order to know what instrument you need. Um, and, but I mean, like, this is all a huge process. Like I told my program director, I was about like certain I was going to quit. And that's how close this all came. And it sounds like, um, uh, just from our previous conversations, as you had that conversation with your program director, that, uh, she tried to accommodate you, um, and give you some time, but can you elaborate on that some? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> The day I was in the ICU, I was on my ICU rotation. Um, the day that I decided that I was gonna like quit residency. <laughs> and I was putting in a HD catheter in somebody and the line, I could get the wire or no, I could get the stick in the vessel, but I couldn't thread the wire. No matter how like hard I tried, I couldn't do it. And I tried multiple spots and multiple like more senior people helped me and we just, we couldn't do it. And I got so frustrated. It seems like such a stupid thing to like, like that was the moment that I broke, but like I went home and I was like, I never want to be the person who's called in at night to do something like this. 
I never want to be the person who's relied upon to do this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, that is not me. I'm over this. And I called my parents and I told them like, I'm really unhappy and I think I might quit. Um, and the next day, excuse me, I told my program director, um, and she said that she had always been worried about me, which I thought was an interesting comment because I didn't really know what that meant. You know, like, well, if you were worried about me, was there something we could have done earlier? Was there more support I should have had? Um, but she did say like immediately, she was like, you're gonna take the next week off. And she made like very quick arrangements for my shifts to be covered. Um, and I had the week to decide, but this was a decision I couldn't exactly make in a week, which was difficult. My dad, um, fortunately my dad is retired and he was able to come out and stay with me. And we spent most of the week just like talking about, do I even wanna be a doctor? Um, if so, what kind of doctor do I want to be? I was like looking at residencies for like combined like family medicine psych. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this sounds cool. This sounds great. Like I shadowed one of our family med doctors. Um, and, but I just like couldn't give it up. Like my, my therapist helped me. Like we did sort of like a guided, I guess, meditation, so to speak, or enactment of like what would it feel like to tell my program director and like my peers you're gonna quit like I've decided to quit and I've decided to leave you know how how would I feel and I just felt so sad um like envisioning that and I think one, that was one of the things that I was just like I just think I really do love this and I think I would be really good at it um I just got to figure out like a way to be myself and also continue. Um, so it took a lot of kind of reconnecting to those things and building up some resolve to be able to go back. <laughs> it was difficult, obviously. <laughs> Thanks for sharing all that. And, you know, just to kind of um, give our listeners kind of actionable things they can do. It sounds like in your specific scenario, there were several things that several steps you went through. And one was recognizing in yourself yeah. that you're seeing these patterns of, um, you know, unhealth, um, if you want to call it, uh, you weren't happy. You were seeing these patterns of, yeah. of, of thought processes. And after you saw that, then you took the step where you were willing to go seek help and, um, you know, talk to somebody and get uh, professional help. And then, uh, you realize kind of in that process that you need to take time to take care of yourself outside of your job, do things that are enjoyable to you and um, and pursue after those things. And then um, at the same time, you're working on your skill set at work and you're getting more confidence in, in your ability to perform your job. And it sounds like as you're walking through these steps, then things are um, you're able to walk forward and the decisions that you've made as far as continuing your education and your surgical training. And, you know, we all know that surgical training is 
uh, phase of life that I don't think anybody would ever uh, redo after they've gone through it. Um, it's a very difficult phase of life. And <laughs> so, you know, you, it seems like you're learning some key uh, tools to kind of help uh, to adapt to these very stressful and difficult situations so that you can get mm -hmm. through. And it sounds like as you're doing that, you've also been able to help other people that have expressed that they have similar thoughts and feelings um, as you. Um, can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I will say about my peers when I was struggling, um, I'm not really sure like how people found out. I guess I don't really care, but <laughs> Certainly the senior, like the chief residents at the time, I think were privy to this because they had to, they had to know um, from our program director. And several people like reached out to me. Um, and there were some right like fourth years at the time um, who there was one person in particular who like really took me aside for probably like 40 minutes um, during one of my shifts. And he was like, don't worry about that like Steve's going to cover your patients. Like, don't worry, we're going to, we're going to go talk. And he just shared his own sort of experience and frustrations um, and like imparted his belief and confidence in me um, that I could do this. And there were also a lot of people who were honest about, you know, I've, I've thought about leaving Um you know, I used to think people who left were a failure and now I don't because I've seen how hard it is. Um, and just knowing that, like, I think those people who I felt so separate from at times were more similar. Our experiences were more similar than I, than I had imagined was um, powerful. And knowing that they they had my back, like regardless, like this resident in particular was going to be our rising like scheduling ch chief for that next year. And he was like, you know, if you end up doing your third year, but reapply to a different specialty, I'll make sure that you, your schedule's okay. Like that we accommodate you going to interviews and like, like I'll support you whatever way. And just knowing that was, was very helpful. So I've been surprised now um, that more junior residents have come to me asking about these things um, or expressing their own like self-doubts and their own frustrations, their own kind of unhappiness. Um, and I do think that, I guess, I've, I've always been a very honest person um, and a, like pretty open about my experiences and who I am. So once I kind of got through the acuity of all of this, I started talking more openly about like, yeah, I see a therapist. I got to go, like, I got to leave a half an hour early today because I go see a therapist. <laughs> or like, you know, once I went on my SSRI, like I started feeling way more balanced and like could handle a lot more stress at work. Um, and a lot of residents and students too have really have thanked me in private about being so frank about things and being so open about stuff, which in and of itself is just reinforces that I did a good job taking care of myself <laughs> and hopefully people can learn from that. Well, I want to commend you in the real genuine sense that you've had the courage to come out and share things that like you said, I'm sure many of us, 
also have experienced and these really low lows where we just don't know if we can go on and if this is really what's right for us, but also knowing deep down inside that there's a level of commitment and joy and gratification that we get from the work and you know how do we balance this thing this profession that we love with these incredible challenges that are sometimes so hard to overcome you know it just makes me think that we really do have to make space for these conversations and you've done a fabulous job of already creating a culture i think within your residency program where these conversations and the things that really are ubiquitous across residents who are in surgery experience um, can be topics of conversation and there can be support and solidarity that people feel that they're not weak. We are human and these things happen. And when you're dealing with really long hours and not seeing your family or not getting enough sleep, the the compounded effect of that on a person uh, has has an effect on that person, uh, and it doesn't it it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or that you're defective. And you know, coming out about seeing a therapist and being on a uh, SSRI is also something that you know, in my generation, there's no way in hell anyone would have said something like that. Um, and and even even today, there's a lot of stigma around something like that, which is really absurd. There are reasons to see therapists and that are very legitimate and nobody should be made to feel bad about that and nobody should be made to feel bad about supportive therapy to help with their homeostasis. So the idea that we could be penalized for supporting our own health and well-being because there's a stigma is just so antithetical to healthcare and wellness. So I, I really thank you for what you've already done. And hopefully it will, hopefully, hopefully there are others like you out there who have the courage to, to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is tough stuff and we need to be compassionate towards each other. I feel like truly, I mean, it's, it's like a cliche at this point, but you know, you can't take care of each other if you're not taking care of yourself type of thing. You can't have good relationships with people and, take good care of your patients if you're exhausted all the time um, or just unhappy for whatever reason or discontent. And it's, it's funny because in central Massachusetts, we were hit pretty hard with COVID in the spring such that, you know, we canceled all our elective cases for multiple months. Um, Our, I was sent to work, sent, I volunteered to work in a COVID ICU, which I loved. And it's funny because we were working reduced hours, like worked like 50 hours a week, maybe instead of the 80 or more that we work. And I, um, I felt I had time to like write. I had time to reflect on what I was doing. I had time to read about different, you know, event settings, different, like whatever, renal replacement therapy. I had time to read about critical care stuff and read about my patients and think about them and I was working really hard, but I came to work every day feeling really good. And this, I remember saying this to an attending of mine, like, it just makes you really question, like, how we do our training. And he was like, uh, yeah, like, he didn't want to own to the fact that, like, 
maybe having a little more balance is actually a good thing. <laughs> so there's one final piece from your narrative that I want to read or say rather than having you read it because I also really loved it and I wanted other people listening to hear it because I, I just think it's so true. You wrote, I'm only able to retain my determination and optimism by remaining true to myself. I find it abhorrent to bend to the baseless beliefs of what a surgeon is and is not. Doing so is like holding part of me underwater and never allowing me to come up for air. Yeah. My therapist described me. She was like, I feel like you're just holding who you are underwater. And I, that imagery was just so resonant. That's how like a lot of my second year felt. Yeah, and I think um, in reading your narrative and in listening to you talk, um, I think that one valuable thing that you offer all of us is this um, ability to be a storyteller. You tell great stories in writing, you tell great stories in person. And uh, Dr. Miller had commented on this um, in a prior uh, episode that um, she, when she was going through some difficulties, one of the things uh, that helped her to get through is um, talking with a, a fellow colleague and realizing that the struggle is there for all of us, but we don't talk about it because in our uh, workplace culture, we are taught not to talk about these things, not to show weakness, not to uh, be vulnerable. Um, but we find that when we tell our stories and we tell them to other people, that they have similar stories and then they share their stories. And as we share these stories, then we actually become stronger. So in our vulnerability and our weaknesses, you know, when we make ourselves vulnerable to others, we actually become stronger in that versus uh, what our culture tries to make us believe. So, um, you know, thank you for coming on and for talking to us and for uh, sharing your story. Um, and, you know, my challenge to you and to those that are listening to us are to tell your stories. Um, don't, uh, you know, don't continue to propagate this culture where we have to put up a front of who we are supposed to be, but, um, you know, allow who you are to actually come through and um, to let others learn from that. Because as we do that, then, you know, we actually will be making um, our workplaces and the care that we provide for patients and ourselves much better. So um, again, thank you. Do you have any last comments or any last um, remarks? Oh, no, this has just been quite lovely and such a privilege and honor to be a part of. And I don't know, get to talk to you guys. Um, I do think it's important and hopefully this can all just, I don't know, just make our careers a little better, our professions a little better. You know, I think about the first step that like our patients have to make is be vulnerable with us as doctors. So it, it's important that we be vulnerable with each other too. That's where, that's where the healing begins. Thank you for joining us today. It's a nice way no, to thank end. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening today and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening. You can also visit our website at www.physicianjustequity.com where you can access our resource library and tell us who you want us to interview next. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Stay safe, everyone.